You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. We have spent pretty much the last three months going through an incredible book of the Old Testament. It is the book of Nehemiah. We've taken one chapter a week, and here we are. This is it. This is week 13. This is the last of Nehemiah. It's chapter 13. So you know a lot of fairy tales and and stories that get dressed up as kids' stories in the Western world usually end with this tagline. See if you can complete it for me. And they lived, you know it, and they lived happily ever after, meaning everything was perfect and there were no problems ever again. Well, the Bible is not a fairy tale. In fact, it's more like a horror story if you look at it from God's perspective. It's the most honest book that's ever been written. And it deals with the pains, the problems, the perils of human sin and folly and rebellion. And all of that comes to full display in Nehemiah 13. Let me remind you of the storyline of the book of Nehemiah. First, there's a remnant. It starts with a small group of people who really do know and love the Lord. But that means there's a whole lot of people who professed faith, but they didn't possess faith. And they certainly did not practice faith. But there were a few true believers, and Nehemiah was one of those. Now, as the book opens, Nehemiah is living in the Persian capital city of Susa, working for this godless, demonic king in his empire, the Persian Empire. He gets word from his brother and others that the city of Jerusalem is in disarray. The city that was ransacked some 141 years earlier during the time of Daniel. And no one in 141 years has been able to rebuild it since. This disturbs Nehemiah that he immediately goes into prayer of confession to God for all of the sins of Israel. And then because he is a trustworthy servant of the king, remember he's the cupbearer. And that doesn't mean, hey, here, here's your cup. The cupbearer bears the responsibility of drinking the wine first because this king could get poisoned. Because this king was a horrible person. And so there were many people that he killed, who were rivals to the throne. So what's to say that somebody else is going to try to take him out? So Nehemiah, the cupbearer, risked his life on a daily basis. Plus, he was the steward that would be over any of the, you know, state-sponsored dinners and, and so on. So he had, a, he had a big role. But he was a trustworthy servant of this king. And it The king allows Nehemiah to fulfill his calling by God to go to Israel. He's going to relocate for a while in the capital city of Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, rehang the gates, reopen the temple so that the people of God could once again come to the place and worship God after all these years. It's easy for him, right? I mean, he's got the Lord on his side. 
but what he also has is enemies on every side. Enemies who don't want God's people to succeed. And in the book of Nehemiah, those enemies are named. In particular, there are two of them, Sanballat and Tobiah. We have heard them since almost day one in reading this book. So all throughout, there is major opposition, distractions, a PR campaign against God's people. There are a host of battles that ensue. But of course, God wins out, which means God's people win out. After 141 years of no one leading a rebuilding effort, under Nehemiah's leadership, all of the people of God get the job done in 52 days. And then the most incredible thing happens. Ezra, a contemporary of Nehemiah, who also has a book of the Old Testament named after him, begins to read God's word to all of the people. With the temple closed for all those years, maybe for the first time in most of these people's lifetime, they finally get to hear what the Lord has to say. Ezra stands up on a stage, literally a pulpit built for him by Nehemiah for this occasion. And Ezra reads the Bible and he preaches for six hours. It's my new life verse. Why, does, why for six hours? Because the people can't get enough. And then with the most amazing result, a revival breaks out. There is joy. There is weeping. There is singing and celebrating and choirs and there are prayers and there's prayers of confession. In fact, the longest prayer recorded in the Bible is in Nehemiah 9 as all of the people of Israel confess their sins to the Lord. There's this mass revival, tens of thousands of people all coming together and they commit themselves to the Lord. And then they take a whole week off. It's like they go to a Bible conference. They, they can't get enough learning about God's word. And in the, this revival that's really instigated and led by the Holy Spirit is working in particular on and through the men. And the men get together and they covenant they commit themselves to this newfound lifestyle to the Lord. And they say, okay, we're going to love the Lord. We're going to be faithful to our wife. We're going to marry believers only. We're going to raise our kids to love the Lord. And we're going to give generously to fund local ministries. And they make these public commitments, these oaths, and they band together in the sight of God to do what God created them to do and what now he is calling them to do. And here's what we know. This revival was immediate. It was passionate. It was effective. That means it could last for the rest of their lives, right? The answer is no. Because they didn't stay at it. They lost their focus and they returned to the previous ways of leaving God out of their lives. They intermarried with foreigners, which would lead them to idolatry. They neglected their tithes and offerings to the Lord. They stopped reading and obeying God's word. They neglected the Sabbath and the commands to honor the Sabbath. They allowed Sanballat and Tobiah access to the life of God's people. I mean, how could this happen? 
I thought Nehemiah was so on top of this that he dedicated the last 12 years of his life to righting all of these wrongs. Yeah, he had. But then he returns to the king's post in the capital city of Susa. Now, we're not sure why. We don't know if he felt like, well, I had only committed 12 years, so it's time to go back, or was it that he felt like, you know what, this work has been accomplished, I'm leaving it in capable hands, I'm going to go return, or was it that the king himself said, all right, Nehemiah, we need you back. Whatever the case is, he spent millions of dollars, most of the, the kings, because if you remember when he was leaving, he got the king to agree to help bring supplies along. He gave 12 years of his life. He puts his life on the line. And he gave it all to God. Things seem to be going good. And so he transitions. He hands over the leadership to others. What immediately happens? Everything goes to ruin. Now Nehemiah is going to return to Jerusalem after some time away. And what is he going to find? A mess. Let me show you as we begin reading. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God. Now, this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 23. It had to do with, um, well, here's the reason why. Because they had not met the Israelites with food and water. In other words, when the people of Israel had left Egypt and they were in those wilderness wanderings for all those years, here was this opportunity for other people groups to help out the Israelites, and they refused. Not only did they refuse, but they hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. This is that whole talking donkey scene in the book of Numbers. You think, is there really a talking donkey in the Bible? Yes, there is. Go to, go to the book of Numbers. Um, I forgot what chapter it is, but go find it. <laughs> when the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. Wait a minute. This is the enemy. He's one alongside of Sanballat who was anti-Nehemiah, anti-God, anti-God's people. And he, that is the priest, Eliashib, provided him, that is Tobiah, with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and the incense and the temple articles in other words, Tobiah is getting a room in the courts of God's house. It was also the place where the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers were kept, as well as the contributions for the priests. It's like, oh, we don't need the offerings of the temple furnishings and the tithes. Uh, we don't need to supply the Levites, the musicians, and the gatekeepers. Let's remove all that stuff and give Tobiah room. While all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. Nehemiah is writing this. So I wasn't there when all this was going on. 
for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Babylon became Persia. He returned to the king. So after 12 years in Jerusalem, Nehemiah returns to his station in the Persian Empire. Sometime later, we'll make a guess as to a few years, and I'll show you why after a little bit. Sometime later, I returned, came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done. So he uses the word evil. Evil thing Eliashib had done in providing to buy a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. It's like they had a bad breakup. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. What that means is, they were no longer supported by the people's tithes and offerings. So they had to leave their assigned worship spots for God and go find other employment. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together, stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shilamiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. And it's like Nehemiah just kind of says, okay, remember me for this, my God. Do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. Okay, so bad move number one. The people neglected their duty to the temple. The place where they were to gather to worship God, something they promised to do in chapter 10. In addition, in those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. And bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre, outside of Israel, who lived in Jerusalem, were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath day to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing that you're doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Okay, so bad move number two. The people returned to buying and selling and bartering on the Sabbath. If the temple was the place to worship God, then the Sabbath was the day to worship God. Something, again, they promised to uphold in chapter 10. Here's what they said in chapter 10. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or any holy day. And three chapters later, that's already done away with. So back to chapter 13. Back to that same verse, I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you're doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? 
didn't your ancestors do the same things? So that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city. Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no one could, no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. It's like a Black Friday lineup. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. Did it work? From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. And again, Nehemiah inserts a quick prayer. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. All right, in addition, moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. These were people groups outside of Israel. And therefore, subject to enticing God's people away to foreign gods, away from the worship of the one true God. And Nehemiah says this, half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. First of all, this gives us an indication that Nehemiah was away from Jerusalem for several years. Long enough for the people to intermarry and to have kids old enough who could then begin to learn the language. And again, something that they promised to uphold to avoid marrying foreign women for their sons or men for their daughters. What's more, that phrase to not know how to speak the language of Judah means they are no longer reading the Hebrew scriptures. They had neglected God's word. They weren't being obedient to God because they didn't know what God wanted for them. So they're not raising their kids to know and love the Lord. They're not praying with their kids. They're not bringing them to church. They're not reading the Bible with them. They don't even know the Old Testament language, so God's kids can't study God's word. They wouldn't have known that God wants a relationship with them. Something you're going to miss out on if you don't know what this book is all about. Well, someone told me it's just a bunch of rules. Like, God's this killjoy and doesn't want me to have a life. Those of you who belong to Jesus know better. Yes, there are boundaries that God places over us not to take away our fun, but to take away our meaningless life, to give us a future and a hope and a purposeful life. Have you ever felt like you're just going through the motions, just in a rut? You want to know more, feel more, experience more. That's the whole point of Christmas. We'll say more about that in a minute. But all of this sin and folly and rebellion 
it angers Nehemiah upon returning and witnessing the evil that the people were doing. He actually uses the word evil. We pointed that out. Today, we may call it tolerance, diversity, pluralism. God would call it evil. (laughs) And if we were to have read one more verse, this ought to get you into Nehemiah a little bit later today. If we had read one more verse, you'd find Nehemiah actually gets into a few altercations and scalps a couple of guys. Why is Nehemiah so angry? Because they're hurting one another. And they're hurting their relationship with God. In addition, they're dishonoring their witness to the world. And ultimately, they're going to ruin the eventual coming to Jesus, the coming of Jesus to this city of Jerusalem, to this temple, through these gates that they have rebuilt, these walls to get into this temple. The whole purpose of rebuilding the walls and rehanging the gates and reopening the temple and reigniting the worship of God was to welcome Jesus Christ who would come within about 400 years. So that's what's at stake. And there's one more thing that frustrated Nehemiah and should frustrate us. It's called apostasy. Apostasy is a Greek term that actually comes from the military. Let's say that you're part of a military unit and you're fighting for your nation against an enemy nation. Apostasy is treason. It's where you turn sides and you attack your own nation. You attack and oppose your own fellow soldiers. It's the worst betrayal of all. And it's something that happens in the physical realm and it happens in the spiritual realm. And so spiritual warfare is where God's people are trying to do ministry and God's enemies are trying to do anti-ministry. And so apostasy is when you're with God's people and then you turn and you oppose and attack God's people. What you're actually doing is the work of Satan. You may claim that it's in the name of the Lord, And it's all very confusing to unbelievers. You know, if you just came right out and said, hey, I'm not a Christian, no one's confused. But if you say, yeah, I'm a Christian. But if what you believe and how you behave is opposed to God, that's really confusing. You know, in our day, apostasy is epidemic. It's easier to find false teaching than it is to find good Bible teaching. It's much easier to find people who think that love is God and don't know that God is also holy. It's a lot more popular to say you get to sleep with whomever you want and you don't need to repent of your sin. You don't need to change your life. But think about this. If the truth is we're all good people and God loves us as we are and his desire is not to change us, his only response to our tolerances and diversity is celebration and pride, then why in the world did Jesus come? Why in the world did he die? Why in the world did Jesus rise? And why do we need to be saved? Why do we need a savior? Because that's what Christmas is all about. We are sinners. By nature, we were born 
that way and by choice. We cannot choose to be perfect. But God is holy and perfect. No sin can exist in God's presence. So how does sinful you and me get to be with God? It's not by trying to do enough good. That's still just sinners doing occasional good. It's not about money. It's not about how many times we come to church. Oh, now your ears are perked. It's not about how long our prayers are. It's not about how much of the Bible we read on a daily basis. It's all about Jesus. He was perfectly fine in heaven, worshiped by the angels 24-7. And he got off his throne and he came down here on a rescue mission for us. He is God. In fact, he is God with us, Emmanuel. And he lived without any sin. And the Bible tells us that he became sin. He took on sin so that we could have his grace, his forgiveness. We could become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 21. So how do you get eternal life? A life in the very presence of God? You have to believe that Jesus died in your place for your sins and that he is no longer dead. That he is the living Lord, now ruling and reigning. Do you know this? The most important question you'll ever have to answer is who is Jesus? Do you love him? Do you know that he wants to have a relationship with you? No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, he wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to have a relationship with you so badly that he would take on humanity and come into this world and be abused and spit upon and slandered and murdered for you. Nehemiah returned to find a mess. How did it devolve to that point? Because God's people didn't stay at their post. Reading his word, teaching it to their kids, having it implanted in their hearts so they'd live out their faith so that they could include God in their every day. You know, it's the same for us. If you don't stay focused on your studies, well, welcome to the 10th grade for the fourth time. If you don't stay focused on your recovery, you will relapse every time. If you don't stay focused on your relationship with God, you're going to neglect him. And you're going to reject the greatest source of power and love and grace and truth that this world has ever known. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. And as our hearts are ready to hear what's coming next week, to be reminded of what Jesus is all about. 
We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.